3CR Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and the Burung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of the First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8:30 a.m. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Grace. Good morning, <laughs> Claudia. Lovely to be back. How are you both? I've yeah. been good, I've been good. I've just finished my last week of semester, last week, so I'm really glad that now I'm starting my holiday, although assignments are still coming in. But yeah. A bit more time. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Yeah, congratulations on finishing. That's great. And uh, you're going on a bit of a holiday now. Yes, ex- um, actually in two weeks, I'll be going back to Malaysia. Wow. So yeah, I'm taking my break finally after about seven months of school. Yeah, in yeah. a while. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. So what have you been up to, Claudia? Well, I've been down in Launceston the last few days at a conference uh, for the Australian Oral History Association. Oh, so exciting. I love oral history. It was a very exciting event. Yeah. There was about 110 delegates and wow. they came from mostly Australia, but there were also some representatives from New Zealand and Canada. Uh, and one from Scotland. Excellent. So, um, yeah, it was a really rich, diverse group of people discussing um, many different projects and many different issues that arise in uh, oral history um, in terms of the ethics and the way memories can be interpreted mm. and um, and contested as well. So, um, yeah, lots of fascinating discussions and lots of interesting, um, exciting entry points into areas that I didn't know about. For example, uh, that Australia had uh, a massive trade union um, training centre in rural mm. Australia that trained um, thousands and thousands of trained trade union um, uh, members over a period of about 30 years. Wow, that's great. What was roughly that 30 years period? Uh, so sort of 70s to 90s. Well, okay. Set up during the Whitlam period and then uh, continued through mm. the Fraser period and only finished when, when Howard came in and chopped it. Um, <laughs> well, why are we not surprised? Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting to hear that such an expansive program was actually set up by government to uh, to encourage and support um, members in in uh, strengthening their um, skills in many different areas, including sort of strategic negotiation. Yeah, um, and then some fascinating discussions about. Um, Indigenous uh, storytelling and particularly the uh, local traditional owners from the area around Launceston, the Palawa people um, spoke very passionately about uh, the determination that they're showing in the repatriation of objects of their ancestors that are held in overseas institutions in France and Britain 
and it's been a real struggle that they've persevered with since the 70s. They're now getting some pieces back on loan only for two years. Um, yeah, but uh, really beautiful stories um, and very intimate and traumatic stories as well being shared there. So, yeah, yeah. very um, very moving and uh, a great sense of solidarity amongst the oral history group to support in any way they can. Mm. Yes, it's so funny. Years, Quite a few years ago now, I went to a, just one section of an oral history conference in Sydney, again, international, and one of the really interesting ones was women who were standing, Israeli women, who were going to checkpoints to observe and record how Palestinians were being treated in those checkpoints. So, yeah, quite, um, anyway, it was very moving and a great way of, you know, um, bringing those issues to the attention of people. Mm. Yeah, and that's, um, by capturing these lived experiences, you sort of get a textual layer to the history that you might not otherwise get from documented reports. Um, yeah, so you really get a lot more personal um, input into... Well, on the ground stuff mm. too, you know, how people's daily lives were affected by some of those events. And um, it's, yeah, I agree. I love it. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's a way of filling in gaps too, because as we know, history is often written by... The um, victors? <laughs> yeah, and mm. a lot of white men. So it's yeah. a way of hearing voices that weren't captured mm. in, in recorded history so yeah. fascinating well lucky you oh, yes i was so. very privileged <laughs> yeah <laughs> really amazing and how are you judith what have you been doing well nothing is um intellectual or <laughs> what cloud is i've been going to the jazz festival the melbourne international jazz festival oh, oh nice wow. yeah no it's been it's been pretty fantastic so far i've seen three things and uh yeah, two amazing drummers, one from Italy, but now based in Remigi, uh, based in New York, doing a lot of avant-garde kind of jazz. And um, I went to see Menagerie, which is a local group there at the Darabin Arts Centre. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been really nice, actually, because I'm working quite hard during the day. So it's been really nice just to get out at night and just experience that. And yeah, it was very yeah. like experiencing in that you just, you know, the, it's, the music is just takes over. So. Yeah, definitely. We all need that. We all moment. need that. We need to grace. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Sure. I definitely need that every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, that's been good. Yeah, yes, that's really good. Um, so yeah, let's introduce our segments for today. We've got a lot, as usual. Um, <laughs> yes. So I've spoke to Lindsay Pierce, the research associate at Curtin University discussing the United Nations Torture Prevention Committee uh, visit to Australia and how to hold the nation accountable if the deadline for anti-torture protocol commitment is not met. And then after that, I'll be speaking to um, Nazia Mashni, the Vice President of Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, who will be leading the discussion on its appetite, what now, the fight for justice in Palestine. Uh, that of the webinar that's happening today and discussing the Labour government's commitment to recognising Palestine and recognising justice and dignity for Palestine. Yeah, I mean, it is so important what's been happening there and uh, I'm going to be really interested yeah, to hear more about that. Very timely with um, Australia now yes, shifting def- its position on that's the right. capital of yeah. Israel. Mm-hmm. For sure. And uh, then I, I don't know if people have noticed, like if you... Um, attend the Wheeler Centre regularly, you might have seen 
that we've got coming up there, um, uh, an event called Women's Lived Experience in Decarceration and Carceral Resistance. So I'm going to be speaking to Jade Lane. Um, it's around um, 7.45, I think we'll be doing that. Uh, well, I did actually, I spoke to her yesterday. She was going to come on this morning, but she wasn't feeling well. So we had a chat yesterday, and that was great that she made time. So Jade is the lived experience practice leader at Fitzroy Legal Service, and she'll just tell us what that um, seminar was all about at the Wheeler Center. Mm, fantastic. And then to wrap up the show at about 10 past eight, I'll be speaking with Professor Justine Nolan. Uh, about the intersection of human rights and mega sports ahead of the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. And Professor Nolan is the director of the Australian Human Rights Institute at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Yeah, well, it is a packed show, as you said. And um, yeah, looking forward to it. Looking forward to everything that's going on today. Um, well, I looks like we're right on time. So I'm thinking I'm just going to hit straight to my segment. Um so basically, I spoke to Lindsay Pierce. If those who n- didn't catch it, uh, the associate professor, sorry, the research associate at Curtin University, um, discussing the, the United Nations Torture Professions Committee visit to uh, sorry committee's visit to Australia, and this will hold Australia more accountable and transparent towards Australians' treatment in various detention centres. It actually is happening from October 16th, which actually started about two days ago. And it's going on until, about three days ago, sorry, until the 27th of October. And I mean, just I just have to say, Grace, we don't think of torture in Australia, do we? I yeah, mean, we, we associate it with like a totalitarian regimes, not, not here. So I'm very interested in hearing more about this. Exactly. And the fact that they will be making unannounced visits to all these detention yes. centres. So obviously it has to be that way. If not, how can we see the transparency and the raw of what the raw scenes of what's going on behind closed doors? So yeah, mm. definitely um this is has been a very exciting, very interesting, sorry, interview that I did with um Lindsay. And yeah, let's hear what Lindsay has got to say. Um, hi, Lindsay. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, thank you so much for taking your time to come and um, speak to me. So obviously, we know that the U- United Nations Torture Prevention Community is visiting Australia, and they are here, actually, this this week and on, until next week. So um, can we just first un- let our listeners understand what is the United Nations Torture Prevention Community and uh, Committee and what is their purpose? Definitely. Um, before I do that, I just want to acknowledge that um, I'm speaking and calling today from the traditional lands of the Wanderer people of the Kulin Nation. And I just want to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and particularly because the topic that I'm going to be sharing a bit about and discussing today um, disproportionately impacts um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia because they're often unfairly impacted by the justice system um, and are overrepresented in other places where people may be deprived of their liberty. So I just wanted to note that by diving into that. Um, Yeah, so what is the UN Torture Prevention Committee? I'm going to try and break it down in the simplest way possible, but um, do be warned that there are a number of fun acronyms that governments like to put together um, just to confuse us and keep us on our toes. But um, so the United Nations Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture and Other Cruel 
inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment is what is referred to as the SPT um, or the Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture. So I'll just refer to them as the SPT. Um, but essentially their purpose is to help United Nations member states prevent torture, abuse, and other types of mistreatment in all places where people might be deprived of liberty. Um, if you're not sure what that means, I'll just provide a really brief definition. So essentially, um, any places where people might be deprived of liberty or detained, I think typical ones that probably first come to mind are prisons, police cells, youth detention facilities, and immigration detention. But this also refers to places like secure mental health facilities, um, secure child welfare facilities, or other disability homes where people may be um, housed and living together um, involuntarily, you know, due to health reasons or other reasons, um, but also things such as children or babies, young children in prison with their mothers um, if they are detained. Um, so essentially the UN members, or sorry, the UNSPT helps prevent torture and abuse by having the right to visit places where people are deprived of their liberty completely unannounced. So this means that they can come and take a look and see how things are run um, and how people are being treated in these settings without having any advance notice of the um, kind of the group that is, or the uh, entity that is um, having these people in their care. So they have no advance notice to essentially be on their best behavior. Um, so to kind of fully put this in context, um, the UNSPT was developed under the UN's Anti-Torture Protocol, which surprises another acronym called OPCAT. So OPCAT is um, referring to the optional protocol for the Convention Against Torture, which is a completely voluntary protocol. Around that 104 countries have signed OPCAT and 91 have enacted it, um, which includes Australia. Um, so OPCAT requires all signatories to establish what's called independent monitoring bodies to basically do the same type of unannounced visits that the SBT is doing over the next few weeks in Australia. Um, but there's kind of an important distinction. So unlike the SBT, Australia's um, NPMs or independent bodies um, will be established to conduct regular visits after the SBT is left. Um, I just want to point out that the focus is not to scrutinize um, kind of adherence to existing standards, but really to identify risks and create um, recommendations and engage in constructive dialogue to prevent mistreatment in these settings, which unfortunately um, is quite prevalent um, in Australia, but also globally, because people in these settings tend to be extremely vulnerable. Um, and just another distinction that um, the SBT and um, NPMs established within each country are not in place to respond to or handle instances of ongoing mistreatment, but really the prevention is on, or sorry, the focus is on prevention, which really is so critical given the vulnerability of people in these settings. So if you've got any follow-up questions, um, that was a lot of information, I think. Um, it's a lot to kind of line up. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answered that question. Yep, no worries. Uh, yeah, definitely did answer the question. So, um, so why is the United Nations community widely visiting Australia? So, is there because of uh, is there any certain reason, like a specific reason, why? Um, yes, I mean Australia has, as I mentioned, has signed that um, anti-torture protocol or OPCAT. 
but they've been really notoriously slow on an international scale to implement it. Um, in a few instances, that's been described as an international shame, which is quite unfortunate. Um, and unfortunately, Australia doesn't have a great reputation when it does come to the treatment of people deprived of their liberty. Um, some of the uh, listeners might recall the 2017 Royal Commission um, into investigations into the treatment of young people in Dondale Correctional Facility um, up in the Northern Territory. So that was kind of one example um, mm -hmm. of the mistreatments that's been going on. Um, so Australia has signed OPCAT actually dating back to 2009. Um, and they ratified, or I guess what that actually means is agreed to implement um, or imminent impl implementation of OPCAT in 2017. Unfortunately, that, that did not happen. Um, they actually chose to delay it to 2022. And one of the main reason that the Australian government kind of cited in that decision was COVID-19, which I think arguably COVID-19 actually did introduce um, more urgency to implement OPCAT because mm -hmm. people in these settings were at great risk of harm due to isolation, um, solitary confinement, you know, when facilities did not have space to separate people as we were doing in our homes. Um, so a lot of mental health and physical health implications, particularly also given the vulnerability, uh, the, the medical vulnerability of people in these settings and to have very complex health teams that would lead to more intense um, COVID-19 uh, disease and implications, but I may be getting a bit off track there, but they did delay to 2022. Um, and I guess not so surprisingly, given that track record moves the last deadline in January 2022, and the UN now has given um, a final one-year extension to January 2023 to actually implement OPCAT. Mm -hmm. um, so that means for them to you know, establish their independent monitoring bodies. Um, so that deadline is now, if you can believe it, only three months away, um, mm -hmm. and we've still made minimal progress. So the UNSPT is visiting um, to undertake independent visits and make, a re make recommendations about their observations and how Australia could be doing things better um, in you know, places where people are deprived of liberty. But they're also going to be meeting with governments to help advise them in the establishment of their NPMs and how to ensure they're fully off-cat compliant, um, including independence of, from other uh, kind of government processes and meeting the needs of specific groups, such as children and young people, people with disability, as well as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be at greater risk of abuse or harm. Um, and they're also meeting with academia, civil society, and advocacy groups to understand key challenges and priorities for preventing harm and implementing OPCAT in Australia. Um, yep. Uh, so you, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Um, and then is there a specific like criteria and standard that the UN has proposed to Australia um, in terms of like by the time of the deadline, is there a specific thing that they had to meet? Like is... Or is that more of like just like a very subjective kind of thing? Um, I, I think it's a bit of both. So what they're looking for is to have uh, independent modern bodies that are implemented by that deadline. And as I kind of mentioned, a critical part of that is they need to be independent. Um, so they can't be, you know, government run just to ensure that, you know, this is truly an independent process and there's no um, kind of conflict of interest there. Yep. Um, yeah, so I think in in the case of Australia, it is likely that 
the SPT visit is in part due to the international reputation that Australia has gained for being so slow to implement OCTAT, um, but just also to make sure that they're on track. And, and just to be clear, um, you know, it's not like the, this is the only country an SPT has visited. You can actually go online and see um, the list of all the countries that they've visited and um, public reports that they've made in terms of their observations in places of detention. Mm-hmm. So they're not necessarily targeting Australia, um, but it is important that they're here. And I think a lot of people are excited because this has been an area that's been moving very, very slowly and unacceptably so. So I think it does put a bit of pressure um, uh, yep. to move forward with this in a way that is off-cat compliant. That's amazing. And um, this was a question that um, kept, kept getting me confused. The National Preventive... Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no problem, no worries. Um, the National Preventive Mechanism that you mentioned, which are the independent monitoring um, bodies, is that mm-hmm. is that the same thing as the UNTPC or is that something that the UN the the UN creates for Australia? So the UN Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture is essentially a treaty body that is mm-hmm. put in place through the UN to ensure and support um, UN member states such as Australia to implement OCAT. Um, and what implementing OCAT looks like and what that means is the establishment of these national preventive mechanisms or the npms which are the independent bodies within each country that will continue on to conduct their own you know regular independent monitoring of places where people are deprived of liberty um it it is a bit confusing i'm not gonna lie so hopefully that's a bit more clear yep hopefully our listen the listeners would um understand the the difference all good on that so yeah it's amazing that um like by them coming here this will hold Australia, um, I would say, more accountable and then um, have better transparency for Australians to understand what happens behind closed doors. And so once um, once when this deadline comes and Australia has yet to still meet that deadline, how would this hold Australia accountable? Um, I think that's a, like the golden question. And I think the reality is um, is that, you know, this is not a legally binding protocol. It is a voluntary protocol. Um, so there really is no legal teeth in terms of what the UN can do to hold Australia accountable. It ultimately is up to the Australian government at the Commonwealth level and the states and territories to band together and make this happen. And, and I will say it, that is happening. It's um, unfortunately just been so slow, but there is progress being made um, to do that, so for example, the Northern Territory and Tasmania have already designated their NPMs, so their independent monitoring bodies, and they've passed legislation. Western Australia um, and South Australia have designated their monitoring bodies, but they've made limited legislative progress. But New South Wales, Victoria, um, they have actually not uh, nominated their NPM yet, and um, this is essentially because they're resisting until there's funding's been guaranteed from the federal government. Um, so there's a bit of resistance there, but I think, um, you know, the, the aspect of international attention that the UN visit is placing on Australia is, mm-hmm. you know, is important. Um, and I think also just raising awareness is a critical piece. Um, the responsibility also falls on Australians to push for this to happen because at the end of the day, um, you know, government officials and people that are making decisions are also thinking about, you know, re-election and they're kind of have their finger on the pulse of is this an important um, thing within our constituents and within the population. Um, So I think it is also up to us to be aware of what's going on and to push 
for change. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about this today and hopefully spark some interest in some of the listeners. Yep, and understood. And yeah, so even though there's no um, legal framework for this, but at least it will help us to um, put pressure on the government to uh, yeah do better for the things that happens behind closed doors. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's so critical because it does, you know all the the functioning of um, these places where people are, are deprived of liberty really has been ha- happening in secret and. We've had a few opportunities to see what's going on through like the 2017 Royal Commission, mm-hmm. um, as well as the 1991 Royal Commission into um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody. Um, but this is an opportunity to op- also, you know, have optimism mm-hmm. um, and not be responding on the back foot to harm and abuse, but also to be preventing it and focusing and working together uh, to identify, you know, how can we be doing better? How can we protect, be protecting uh, the vulnerable health and and protecting the human rights of people that you know don't have their own voices to do so and don't have the power to do so. Yeah, so. yeah, and and good thing that we're having this progress forward, even though it's not too much of uh, improvement yet, but it's a slow step. And then obviously, because COVID came and then it kind of slowed down the process a lot. So yeah, this is a mm-hmm. this is a good good step forward. Yeah, um, yeah, it steps in the right direction. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Um, what the UN subcommittee comes up with and their recommendations or observations, which we hope will be published um, publicly. Mm-hmm. So we can all take a look once they've left. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, so thank you so much, Lindsay. Uh, thank you so much for your insight on this and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. That was Lindsay Pierce, the research associate at Curtin University. She's actually also a research associate at the University of Melbourne and discussing the United Nations Torture Prevention Committee's visit to Australia's detention centres. To to learn more about University's Melbourne's um, Justice Health Unit, which is a a research uh, associate place that um, Lindsay Pierce is part of, you can follow them via Twitter at jhu underscore uom. And to read more on the con- the conversation article that Lindsay um, ha- had a part in writing, it's titled "Why Is a United Nations Torture Prevention Committee Visiting Australia?" And such a good question, isn't it? <laughs> such yep. a great, such a great question. And yeah, such an important one at the moment, especially in youth detention where... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I found is the fact that it's still a voluntary protocol. So, you know, the, the, there's the option of whether we follow it or not. I mean, <laughs> that's always a little bit concerning. But she does see some hope for optimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that always strikes me, though, is the fact that, um, you know, there are countries where, where their prisons are being totally eliminated, I think in the Netherlands, for example, they don't need them anymore. <laughs> and yeah. so what's going on in Australia where we're seeing it increase? And I think building more. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and particularly, of course, in relation to First Nations people. So, Definitely. yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what the UN comes up with. Yes, very. So and oh, 
Yep, and considering how the visit is going to be until next week. So hopefully we get to see good news coming out from all this. We hope we to hope. see the news. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's definitely. hope we will see. We shall keep this news going here De- at 3CR. Definitely. We'll definitely follow up on this when um, the report's released, hopefully in January. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, especially because the deadline is by then and this has already been extended again. So yeah, let's hope things come out good. And um, yeah, we shall see. So stay tuned on that. Um, So yeah, before we head on to our next sermon, we've got a song for you. This is Heavy by Charm of Finches. Outside, if we look closely, we'd find small things could move us. No, we look for great heights and for shimmering brilliance to reflect in our eyes. To sit on a throne even if it's all alone. Blood is blue. Look inside and find our minds are too. We find our minds are blue. And ten years on, will we wonder what we ever thought we were doing with some vague plan and a fear of changing ways that we were living? Oh, we all hold something so
That was um, Heavy by Charm of Finches. So yeah, now we'll be moving on to our next segment. I'll be speaking to uh, Nasir Mashni, the Vice President of Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, discussing the webinar, which is um, its appetite, What Now? The Fight for Justice in Palestine, that is happening at 8pm today, and what it means for the Labour government's recognition of Palestine and understanding Palestinians' lives under occupation and systemic discrimination for justice of the Palestinian people. Joining me this morning is Najer Mashni. Hi, Najer, how are you? Yeah, very well. Very well indeed, Grace. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to speak to you tonight. No problem. And I know that you have been on 3CR a few times before. Really great to have you back here on 3CR. Yeah. Thank you. And, and also for your listeners to remember our show, Palestine Remembered, Saturday at 9.30 in the morning. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, so the webinar, you're leading the discussion on the webinar that's happening today. Uh, what will you be discussing in today's talk on the fight for justice in Palestine? Yeah. Grace, as you said, the title of the Zoom panel discussion this evening is called It's Apartheid, What Now? The Fight for Justice in Palestine. Mm-hmm. I'll be joined by three fantastic, fantastic resources. Hanin Zabi, who is a former Palestinian politician, mm-hmm. and she's a very prominent community activist, as well as Dr. Bess al who's an independent journalist and a best-selling author, as well as uh, Anthony Lowenstein, who's an Australian Jewish uh, anti-Zionist author and activist. Um, a great panel we'll be talking about is, in the first instance, defining apartheid. What is it? Um, and for so many people, apartheid conjures images of South Africa, of a, a separate legal system that discriminated against one people uh, in favour of the other. And what we have today in all of historic Palestine, that is what is today modern-day Israel, the settler colonial state there, as we have here, um, rules over uh, a population and systematically, systematically uh, commits uh, what Palestinians have said for many, many years, mm-hmm. the crime of apartheid. Um, recently, uh, in the past few years, Israeli non-governmental and human rights organisations have begun to talk about the system in the way that the Israel Israeli authorities control Palestinians. And those organisations, Yeshtin and Bethlehem, have both come out and accused Israel of committing the crime of apartheid. And in the past two years, uh, both Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have both uh, uh, levelled the charge of the crime of apartheid against uh, Israel. As well as that, there's many other activist groups, the Harvard Law School, the report out of the UN, etc., that have levered that claim. And it's it's important, uh, Grace, for, for you and, and for the listeners to understand that it, this is not a little charge. The crime of apartheid is a crime against humanity, and it's uh, you know it's, its meaning is derived from international law. It no longer applies purely and solely in the South African context which is what our adversaries claim. But it's not the same. You know, there are Palestinians that, you know, work in hospitals, etc. Well, no, the crime of apartheid has many definitions. Uh, amongst them, the denial of right to education, denial of right to nationality, denial of right to movement, arrest and arbitrary detention. So there's many definitions that contribute to the crime of apartheid. So the panel's job today is to... Uh, 
talk to it, what is it, and speak to the experiences, whether Muslim, Jew or Christian, as to what it's like living under the apartheid Israeli regime. Yes, definitely. And yeah, if, and if the listeners, our listeners are going to join this webinar, then they will be able to understand um, the harsh realities of the Palestinian people. And um, so we also mentioned that the Labour government uh, has said that they recognise the Palestine. And so how, how would this recognition affect the justice for Palestinians? The Labor government hasn't done that. What they did do yesterday, though, which is, look, a very good move. In fact, there's been a number of good moves from the Labor government. Obviously, not everything that we would like and nowhere near as quickly as we would like. Earlier this year, the UN released a report saying the occupation of the the balance of Palestine post-1967 war, 55 years, that the Israelis have moved infrastructure, roads, settlements, three-quarters of a million people, that this no longer looks like a temporary military occupation, but rather but rather a permanent one. And if it is a permanent one, therefore the responsibility of that occupation falls on the occupier. At that time, the United States was outraged with the UN, obviously Israel was, and sought Australia's signature to, on, a, on a letter condemning uh, that report. To her great credit uh, at the time, uh, our Foreign Minister Penny Wong refused to co-sign with the United States. Australia issued its own statement. It wasn't a great statement, but it was a move away from the United States where we've been lock-stop for 10 years. Um, since then, we've also increased uh, aid funding to UNRWA, the UN body uh, dedicated to Palestinian refugees. And yesterday, a, uh, the uh, Labor government reversed a really terrible decision made by our former Prime Minister in the 2018 Wentworth by-election, where he wanted to follow Donald Trump and recognise Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Tel Aviv is the capital of uh, nominal Israel today. Um, and he did that and he said, and then he was condemned and it was, you know, a really political act because Wentworth has a uh, one of Australia's largest Jewish constituencies, uh, many Jews reacted uh, very disappointingly as if we're Australian. The fact that we celebrate God on Saturday should not be brought into domestic politics. So he was rejected. Uh, Dave Sharma was rejected. And at the last election, he was rejected again, our former Prime Minister, which we, we liked. So yesterday, Penny Wong reversed that decision that West Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, um, which we were very heartened by. We've got a long way to go as far as we're concerned. You know, Jerusalem is the historic, cultural, economic, spiritual capital of Palestine, and that's a fact for all Palestinians, be they Christian, Muslim, or Jew. And we look forward to a day when, when that's what Jerusalem is, when Jerusalem's restored. Mm, yes, definitely. And um, for our listeners as well, like um, this is quite a lot to take in, but um, yeah, ho- hopefully that this is something that we'll be able to continuously try to understand and uh, be aware of. And um, why why do we need international call for the justice of Palestinian people? Other than yeah, yeah, uh, that's a good question, Grace. The the reality is the Palestinians are living under the most brutal occupation uh, in the world today. Um, not to discount, you know, the violence, the systemic violence that occurs here, 
not to discount the violence uh, uh, imposed on the Rohingya people or on, on um, West Papuans, all of our brothers and sisters all over the world that are suffering under brutal, brutal white supremacy and colonial, uh, colonial uh, hegemonies. As with all of those people, the Palestinians are without friends in high places, if you will. So international solidarity, uh, speaking on shows like this to your listeners, their activism, whether it be at a protest or letter writing or joining joining the call for dignity for all Indigenous peoples, uh, is part of our common struggle for a better and freer and unimperialistic world. That's amazing. Well, we have uh, not too much time left and we probably have to wrap this up. Um, just just one final question from you, Najir. Um, what should our listeners do to join this weapon, webinar happening today? Of course. If they visit our website, apan.org.au, for Australia Palestine Advocacy Network, apan.org.au, and they scroll down on the homepage, they'll see a link to our Zoom tonight. It starts at 8 o'clock. It's called It's Apartheid, What Now? The Fight for Justice in Palestine. And yeah. we'd be really honoured to see them tonight. That's amazing. And uh, sorry, just to confirm, it's the 8pm um, uh, in, really, in correlation to the daylight saving? Or is that on, is that in Melbourne's time? Or is that oh, that's right. That's Melbourne time. Australian Eastern Standard Time. All right. 8pm. 8 8pm.org.au. Yes, lovely. Good, good to confirm that. Um, Mary, thank you so much, Nazir, for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Grace. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Nazir Masni, the Vice President of Australia's Palestine Advocacy Network, uh, that will be leading today's webinar on its, its appetite, what now, the fight for justice in Palestine. Um, it will be starting at 8pm Melbourne time via Zoom and it's free. You can head down to their website at apan.org.au and if you scroll down once you have uh, gone into the website, it will be the first event you see on their page and you can register through there. That's great. And such, yeah, so important to keep that in our minds. And of course, there's been a lot of um, connections between First Nations peoples here yes. in, in Australia and the, the Palestinian movement. So uh, yeah, lots to think about. Yeah, definitely. Really important interview. Thank you, Grace. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, obviously, we didn't want to give too much away of what's happening in the uh, what's going to be ha uh, going to be talked about in the webinar, but it's really good that Nazir took the time to um, explain the importance of what we should know now if those who aren't, are unable to get into the webinar today, yeah. just to understand what um, how the lives of the Palestinian people. Definitely. And eight o'clock is a really good time because it gives us all time to have dinner <laughs> and then to just settle down and put that Zoom meeting on. So, yeah, thanks, Grace. Yeah, and it's very good that we have dinner first so we can like digest all, um, <laughs> yes. properly what we eat and before we head on to very serious topics on yep, the justice for, for the sure. Palestinian people. Um, well, before we pass on to Judith for our next segment. Um, so I'm just thinking, that, I mean, it, the, the next piece that's coming up is actually quite related to the kinds of things we've been talking about this morning. We've been talking about uh, incarceration rates here in Australia generally, that the UN Committee Against Torture is here to investigate and see what's happening in Australian prisons. And uh, so the, the, next <coughs> excuse me, the next segment that's coming up, we'll actually be looking at the increase in the number of women 
who are being incarcerated. And if you've just joined us, I'm speaking with Jade Lane, the lived experience practice leader at Fitzroy Legal Service. And and it's so good to be speaking with Jade and uh, to be drawing on her experience this morning. And she's also referring to the uh, the um, panel that's coming up at the uh, coming up next next Monday, Monday actually Monday October the twenty fourth. Uh, the lived experience. Um, I'm just sorry. I'm just looking for the name of the whole panel. It's the lived experience in decarceration and carceral resistance. So she's giving us some background to why the panel was set up and why we need it. Here in so Australia. I'm a violence prevention practitioner. My academic background is in geopolitical theory and gender with a a focus on politics of gendered violence. I've been working in the not-for-profit sector for almost a decade, both here in Australia um, and also overseas. And that's kind of been in a mix of roles from grassroots co-design and community work to more strategic and sort of advisory roles. My heart and my passion is really in violence prevention and post-conflict resolution through an abolitionist lens. So I'm really interested in transformative justice and also reducing contact between the community and police. How does that experience translate into your role at Fitzroy Legal Service? I'm one of the few people in the organisation who isn't a lawyer. Um, And so I sort of bring a different lens into the organisation, which is quite interesting. I'm the lived experience practice lead at Fitzroy Legal Service, a position that I hold with a a real sense of honour and maybe a bit of trepidation um, because it is really, really important work and I want to do it well. The role really looks at strengthening Fitzroy Legal Service's capacity to centre lived experience in everything we do. That's both in terms of improving uh, legal service delivery for our clients, but also internally at the workplace and understanding how we can make sure that Fitzroy Legal Service is as safe and inclusive as possible for people with lived experience who work in the organisation. It's a new role um, that I've only stepped into um, a few weeks ago, but one that um, I feel a real sort of deep sense of personal connection to both in terms of my my working background but um but also my life so so there's a a big event coming up at wheeler center an evening of discussion reflections and solutions can you just tell me about that yeah so we're hosting a two-part panel discussion at the wheeler center it's on monday the 24th of october so that's uh next monday at 5.30 p.m. Um, It's on site, which is really exciting. It's the first event I've been to for work in years, so I'm I'm really excited. I love the Wheeler Centre and the space. Um, The event is titled uh, Women's Lived Experience of Decarceration and Carceral Resistance, Uh, and it's really aiming to draw attention to the critical issue of women's over-incarceration. So, um, right now in Victoria, there are 362 women in prison, and of those, um, 204 are unsentenced. That's hard to believe. That really is. And I think, you know, it's really critical that we draw attention to this issue and have a discussion about the need to address women's over-incarceration. Um, and so we're bringing together two panels um, that really aim to highlight successful projects within the sector 
And then also um, our second panel is a panel of lived experience experts who will be talking about their firsthand experience of criminalisation and incarceration um, and really highlighting what's needed to, to keep women out of the criminal legal system. So it's going to be a really great event and I would, yeah, really encourage everyone to get down if they can. Yes, I, I've registered. <laughs> I'm looking, oh. forward, <laughs> looking forward to hearing yeah. It sounds so important, but I'm just, I mean, there are a couple of terms here that I hadn't been familiar with, although many people, other people may be familiar with, but decarceration, what does that term mean? Yeah, so I guess when we talk about decarceration, we're really talking about reducing um, the number of people who are held in a carceral environment, so people who are in prison and in the criminal legal system. So decarceration is really about reducing contact between community and police and ensuring that people aren't incarcerated, so looking for alternative pathways and solutions for dealing with some of the challenges that come up that are some of the drivers of women's over-incarceration. And I imagine there are many ways, I mean, many avenues to work on decarceration, that's for sure. We know that more women are now being incarcerated. What are some of the drivers of women's incarceration? The drivers of women's incarceration are um, really multifaceted and interlocking. I guess before jumping into sort of unpacking what some of those are, I would really like to preface the discussion by acknowledging that our work at Fitzroy Legal Service and, and in the sector more broadly really take place in the context of ongoing colonisation of First Nations communities. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are 21 times more likely to be imprisoned than non-Indigenous women. When we speak about women's over-incarceration, I think we really need to draw attention to that fact that not only are the, the drivers of women's incarceration really gendered and interlocking, but that it's part of a long legacy and an ongoing practice of institutional violence against First Nations women. So I guess I just sort of want to situate my, my answer within that context because I, I think it's, it's really important to acknowledge that. Yes, I'm, I think most of our listeners would be aware of the high proportion of First Nations peoples, I mean, men and women totally uh, disproportionate to the proportion of First Nations people in the population. Exactly. And I, and I think that that's a, a, a real experience that needs to be centred in these conversations. I guess in terms of the, the drivers of women's incarceration, they're really interlocking or intersecting. And I think what's interesting about this question is that I come at this through the lens of violence prevention. And so I'm really interested in highlighting the ways that violence impacts the trajectory of women's incarceration. What we know is that women in prison almost universally have had experiences of violence and harm. And this includes things like family violence, uh, childhood abuse and neglect and sexual violence. When you look at the literature in terms of drivers of women's incarceration, this particular driver is often spoken about as women as victims of crime. You know, women who are incarcerated um, have been victims of crime themselves. I'm really intentional about trying to steer clear of that language. Um, and there, I guess, are two reasons for that. The first reason is that we know from the statistics that people who perpetrate violence against women rarely face a conviction. And then the second is that when we talk about women as victims of crime, it really plays into and reinforces this broader cultural narrative about crime and criminality, which ultimately legitimises carceral logic. 
orients us towards punishment and retribution rather than looking at what are some of the underlying causes of women's incarceration. Yeah, it's very important, I think, what you've just said. And so I guess I speak about it in those terms and, and I use violence and harm because it allows me to sort of locate those experiences that women have both in terms of interpersonal and family relationships, which is a a really critical place where these things happen, but also when talking about particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, it sort of opens up the possibility of us locating those experiences of violence and harm within institutions and the system at large, and, and that's also really important to name and acknowledge. The rest of the drivers that we see so frequently in the literature that we talk about are really sort of flow on or downstream effects or drivers. Um, of those experiences of harm. So they include some of the things that we more commonly recognise. So um, things like drug and alcohol use, homelessness, physical illness and mental ill health, difficulties finding and maintaining stable employment and therefore, um, I guess, stable income, so poverty. I think what's really interesting about looking at this question through that violence prevention lens is that when I do that, what I see is that women are actually criminalised for their survival. Do you mean by that action safe taken to enable or allow their survival? Is that what you mean? Yeah, so the ways that people cope, the strategies that people employ, I guess the impact of violence and harm and trauma on women's lives and on their trajectory. And, you know, that may be showing up in ways, for example, uh, trauma and mental ill health. Um, and then we, we criminalise those things. So women are criminalised for the coping strategies that they employ or for the ways that they survive. And if you've just joined us, I'm speaking with Jade Lane, the lived experience practice leader at Fitzroy Legal Service. So I asked Jade about how policing contributes to the increasing number of women in jail. Here's Jade Policing again. is really at the front end of women's criminalisation um, and their incarceration, and that's both in, in terms of policy and practice. I guess when I speak about policing, I'm talking about boots and resources on the ground Um, but also policing in terms of um, cultural narratives around safety and criminality um, that I think are so deeply ingrained within our collective consciousness. And this shows up in in things like um, the criminalisation of homelessness. So, um, you know, there are people sleeping rough. um, We we are calling the council. The council are calling the police. um, The police are brought in. These people are moved on and they're treated like criminals. It's things like seeing someone buying drugs and calling the cops or or seeing someone in mental health crisis and calling the cops. It might be, you know, you're hearing your neighbours arguing and and you're frightened and you you genuinely want to help and you don't know what to do, so you call the police. Um, And it's these instances that really bring women into contact with that criminal legal system and, and that fails them. So I think there's something to be said here about the way that we sort of rely on policing and the criminal legal system to deal with the fallout of violence and harm. Deal with the fallout of poverty as well. Exactly. And and that's why, you know, these drivers are so sort of interlocking is is because they, they really occur together in many instances. I think what happens is when we rely on the criminal legal system to deal with these issues, we end up creating more harm, more experiences of violence and trauma, and the system sort of becomes a way of disappearing people that we don't know what to do with. 
it's part of the reason why we see such high numbers of women who are sitting in prison who haven't been sentenced. You know, these are conversations that we hardly know how to have yet. And so prison is really a pipeline for placing women away from the rest of society, I guess, so that we don't have to have these conversations, so we don't have to deal with the underlying issues and deal with the root causes. That totally makes sense. And as poverty increases and homelessness among women, and we've certainly heard that older women are increasingly becoming homeless, if the police is the only solution that the society has to these problems, it's pretty impoverished. The Fitzroy Legal Centre has recently put out a report. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so I'll I'll sort of touch on it briefly. Um, As I said, I'm I'm not a lawyer and I would love to let someone speak to this who has much more background and experience in this, but essentially uh, Fitzroy Legal Service released a report um, titled A Constellation of Circumstances and this was following changes to the bail laws in 2018 and it really highlights the impacts and the sort of legal implications of legislative changes that were aimed at dealing with men's violence and the very real sort of lasting impact that those changes have on the lives of women and children as well. As I mentioned, there are 362 women in Victorian prisons and 204 of those women are unsentenced. And this is really the fallout of changes to Victoria's Bail Act. This is something that will be discussed at the event and on the night. So I will leave it to the experts to do that. One of the things that we did speak about, you know, before having this interview was the need to centre people's lived experience. And I think you said that that was rather new to the legal system. It's really important to say that community legal centres in particular have been doing lived experience work since they first began. They, they are there in community at the grassroots doing this work day in, day out. And I, I just really want to acknowledge that and sort of um, highlight that that is happening. But I think in terms of the broader legal sector, I, I do think it is sort of lagging behind other sectors in terms of centering and valuing lived experience for what it is, which is a form of expertise. So, you know, we've had the Royal Commission into Mental Health and there have been a number of recommendations in terms of um, drawing on lived experience as expertise and using that to inform um, service delivery and program design. It's something that I think that um, CLCs could certainly lead on in terms of um, bringing the rest of the legal sector um, along and further down that path. It's really, really critical that we do listen to to the voices and the experiences of people with lived experience What we would hear if we did is that, you know, what we actually need, um, and and you touched on this before, is expansion of safe and affordable housing so that people don't need to choose between leaving a violent relationship or sleeping on the streets. We need peer-led and community-based harm reduction programs that work alongside people who use drugs. We also need to decriminalise drug use, but I think that that's a conversation for another day. I think that, you know, these are the sorts of things that we hear from people with lived experience um, and Alongside these things, what we also really need is relationships. So we need to be able to get close to each other, to talk to our neighbours, to talk to the people in our communities instead of stigmatising and ostracising each other uh, and to figure out how we can draw on each other for support and connection. We'll provide all of us with a softer place to land than what's currently available to us. So I'm really excited to be in a position where I can advocate for that work at Fitzroy Legal Service and work alongside other community legal services that are, that are doing this work and really try to platform that lived experience expert, expertise. 
And that was Jade Lane, the lived experience practice leader at Fitzroy Legal Service. And so much to think about and so much to understand in that conversation. It just was really great to to, have, to speak to Jade yesterday and find out more. And if you are interested in finding out more about women's lived experience in decarceration and carceral resistance, get along to the Wheeler Centre next Monday, October 24th from 5.30 to 8.30. And the Wheeler Centre is at 176 Little Lonsdale Street in Melbourne CBD, and it's all free. And I think there might even be a bit of food, (laughs) some snacks at least, because it is early, 5.30. So, yeah, definitely put in your diary and get along. So great to speak to Jade, and big thank you, Jade, for making time for that conversation. And also just a reminder that the home's not Prisons Rally is taking place uh, this Friday, the 21st of October in Nam at 4pm on Parliament Steps. So that's one to get along to as well. Yeah, for sure. Yep, definitely. And yeah, very exciting to see what's going to be going on on October 24th. And that's next. Yeah, I'm looking, I've, I've registered. I'm, I, I think I said that in the interview. But anyway, just to say it again, yeah, I'm really interested in going along and finding out. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, yeah, so um, before we head on to our next segment, um, yeah, we've got a song for you. This is Everything is Great by Alice Skye. You and I, we're more than friends, and I don't know just how this will end. Everything is great until it's not everything is great until it stops till it stops and if it's not you it's someone else you see so i definitely shouldn't let you bother me i don't want more i just want to be
In the lead up to the state election, join the Homes Not Prisons campaign for street theatre, speeches from people with a lived experience of criminalisation and a rally demanding investment in Aboriginal community controlled public housing for criminalised women and their families. 4pm on Friday the 21st of October at Parliament Steps in Nam, Melbourne. Keep the pressure on. Fun communities, not prisons and police. Friday, 21st of October, 4pm, Parliament Steps. Homes, not prisons, is a 3CR supporter. Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. And that was Everything is Great by Alice Guy. Um, we will now be moving on to an, another song. This is called No Baka No Baganji by Leroy Johnson and The Waterbag. This is a song about my people's connection to the Darling River that we call the Baka. Goes a little bit like this. No baka, no baganji, no baka, no baganji, no baka, no baganji, no baka, no baganji. So my uncle, he reckoned that we got that connection to that Kalpinuku, that's what we call fresh water. Kalpinuku flow, Nati goes along, where the eagle and crow are a part of a sacred song. Where the dusty river track will lead you back to me when that damn over you and I will both be free, they say. They say They say, Nya, 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 Nya,
that died at Manini there, that was the Bounty Brother. That was my title, and we call him Yamba. Where the Yamba lives, he's the blood of our great big land. And my God, I give, is a part of our sacred dance. And all the people learn. When the barker she does not run When that damn wall burst You and I will live as one they say Nya 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 walangimba baka They say Nya 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 walangimba baka They say No Baka No Baganji by Leroy Johnson and The Waterback Beam. Now I'll be passing on to Claudia. Thanks, Grace. And before we go to our next segment, I wanted to do a shout out to my daughter, Sienna, who's turning 16 today. So happy birthday, Sienna. Hey, fantastic. Happy birthday, Sienna. (laughs) Happy birthday, Sienna. So our next guest is Professor Justine Nolan, and this segment is going to be looking at the intersection of sport and human rights. We'll be discussing this in the context of so-called mega-events or large-scale sporting events such as the FIFA World Cup. As many listeners will be aware, the 2022 FIFA World Cup begins in Qatar in just four weeks. The decision to hold the event in Qatar is highly controversial because of the country's human rights record in relation to migrant workers, many of whom have built the infrastructure needed to host the World Cup. The Guardian estimates that 6,500 migrant workers have died in Qatar in the decade between 2010 and 2020, leaving families in the home country without a breadwinner and saddled with unpaid debt. Migrant workers make up 95% of the Qatar workforce and are recruited under a system known as the Kafala system. The system is renowned for its lack of regulation with poor working conditions and employee abuse. 
We now speak with the Director of the Australian Human Rights Institute at the University of New South Wales, Professor Justine Nolan, to learn more about who is responsible for the conditions of Qatar's migrant workers and how stakeholders in mega sporting events might work to bring change. Good morning, Professor Nolan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. We're going to focus on the workers in our discussion, but before we zoom in on that group, I wondered if you could briefly outline the other actors in the megasports event landscape who may be vulnerable to human rights abuse. Yeah, I mean, when you think about megasporting events like the FIFA World Cup or the Olympics um, or other major events, um, often it requires the sort of construction of whole new stadiums, sometimes hotels, so a lot of the time the focus is on particularly construction workers because they're building stadiums. Um, but you might also think about um, workers working in hotels who will receive, you know, a massive influx um, of visitors. In some cases, we'll also see people in the sort of surrounding areas or in those areas where new infrastructure is being built forcibly evicted from their, that place. Sometimes people who are living on the street might be forcibly evicted from cities in order to sort of make them look better. So beyond the immediate workers working on a stadium, there's often a flow-on effect to the community and other workers in other areas. So you might have the rights of the citizens in the host countries also being affected by yeah. the event. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, even beyond that, you might have people like who are visiting the area uh, for the event. Uh, they might be media whose rights might be restricted in what they can say. It might be people attending the events might not have freedom of expression or not be able to freely express themselves, particularly, say, for same-sex couples in certain countries. So it does affect the people living there, but it can also affect people visiting for that event. And, of course, the athletes as well. Yes, exactly, the rights of athletes in, in relation to mega-sporting events where their rights are often restricted. And when we talk about mega-sporting events, what sort of scale of expenditure and revenues are we talking you know, the things that fall into the sort of the mega are usually, you know, the most the, the most common two are the Olympics and the FIFA World Cup. Um, but you also have events like the Commonwealth Games. Then you would have um, the Rugby World Cup. And we're also seeing in Australia over the next decade a sort of an influx of mega sporting effects uh, with the Women's World Cup in football here next year, later the Olympics and also Commonwealth Games. So we're seeing it around the world. But the next decade, there'll be a lot of focus on Australia. And in, this, in the case of Qatar and the FIFA World Cup, the infrastructure that's been required to host this event has involved the building of, I believe, seven stadiums, nine or something <laughs> hotels, a new transport system. We're talking about really large-scale construction in this uh, place for the event. Yeah, it's a, a massive investment by Qatar um, to support the event. Um, so they, you know, they're, they're essentially, you know, building everything new, if you like. So it's going to be looking, you know, brand gleaming, beautifully new. Um, but there has been what we've seen over the last decade, sort of a horror story beneath that in terms of the fate of the migrant workers who have been working on those um, construction infrastructure. Can you tell us about that story? Yes, so as you said at the start, um, the majority of the Qatari workforce is migrant workers. Um, and so over well over 90% of that. And they're often workers coming from South Asia, particularly countries like Bangladesh and Nepal, um, coming to these countries in order to, you know, they, what they think is get better jobs, earn more money and send money home so that they can support uh, people back home. But what 
particularly in relation to Qatar um, and the FIFA World Cup, we've seen sort of this denial of, you know, essential welfare and labour rights related particularly to the construction of the big sports arenas. Um, so things like um, minimum salaries not being paid, unsafe working conditions, um, anti-union policies, lack of ability, you know, to make a complaint or seek a remedy and exploitation of workers and often very much substandard accommodation. Many of these workers might be living on site or very close to the site and that accommodation is provided by the um, construction firm or someone within that supply chain. And over the last decade, we've seen that that, that, that accommodation has been substandard. And when we talk about substandard, we're not just uh, talking at the uh, the edges. We're talking about basic things like no running water, electricity not being available and overcrowding, particularly during the COVID uh, pandemic period. Yeah, I mean, it was it was highlighted during COVID, but, we, you know, the reports from um, groups like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch have, you know, sort of shown that there's 20 men, you know, in a room that might sleep four or five, um, that they're... You know, there might be one toilet for, you know, more than 50 people. Um, there has been a lack of water. There's been a lack of availability of places to cook. Um, so the accommodation is one part of it. Their working conditions are another. But then also the sort of the beyond that, there's questions of how, particularly in Qatar, how freely they can move, whether their passports are retained, whether they can change jobs. Um, their rights over the last decade have been severely restricted. So when they have arrived in Qatar, often under sort of a deceptive recruiting process, not, you know, they thought the job perhaps was better than they were getting, that different wages were going to be paid. Sometimes then their documents are retained so that there's an inability to leave that job. Yeah, I was listening to the first-hand account of one person who worked there. He described it as working in an open-air prison yeah, so we've seen, um, you know, we've seen interviews with workers, um, you know, and we're focusing here on the stadiums in particular, which have got a lot of attention. Um, but they basically become trapped in this environment. So they, you know, they may be promised one thing when they left their country. They've often paid a significant um, recruitment fee, so they've paid to get the job. Um, they've often taken out loans to do this, and then when they arrive, their wages are well below what they're promised, often well below minimum wage. So they, they have no spare money um, to do it. And what's more, they can't leave that job. Um, so they can't return home because their passport is often controlled by the employer. And until last year um, in Qatar, the kafala system, as you mentioned, restricted the ability of migrant workers to even move jobs without the employer um, giving permission to do that. And in terms of responsibility, we've got a few different actors there. Um, firstly, Qatar itself. What's the country's response to the human rights allegations? I believe there have been calls for the nation to abolish the kafala system. So last year, um, Qatar made some changes to the kafala system. Um, you know, there were many reports that they had sort of dismantled it. That That is not true, but they have made um, changes in relation to it. And that those changes have, prob- have, have likely happened because of the scrutiny and pressure. Um, of this um, of, of the World Cup coming up. So previously, as I said, workers simply couldn't even change jobs um, or leave the country without the employer's permission. They've um, amended the kafala system where workers can now change jobs without the employer's permission. They still need to seek an exit visa, visa permission from Qatar itself. 
So um, that that is not a normal approach from many countries. So they have um, limited the effect of it, but they but it's still you know it's still in, is operating to limit migrant workers' rights um, in Qatar. So Qatar has the primary obligation. You know they're the country, they're the state which is con- controlling the conditions where workers are living. Um, but then we see these mega sporting bodies and sponsors and major companies coming in to profit out of the World Cup. So they also have a responsibility in relation to this. So can you tell us about that level of responsibility, um, perhaps talking about FIFA itself, the Federation of International Football Association, which yeah. is really a transnational you know, scale business yeah, so, I mean, essentially, technically, FIFA sort of operates as a non-profit, but it is a business. It's, it's operating in a commercial, you know, it, it runs commercial activities. Um, and as such, um, sort of in the world of human rights, there's something called the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights, which provides guidance for business and, and acknowledges that all businesses have a responsibility to respect all internationally recognised human rights. And FIFA has actually now put that into their policy, saying that they undertake this responsibility to respect human rights. It won't be operative, uh, operative until the next World Cup. So it wasn't in the sort of the hosting contract with Qatar, but the 2026 World Cup, which will be in the US, Canada and Mexico, has may operate under different conditions in relation to FIFA, where they're, they're, they have put explicit human rights obligations into the contract. But their decision to award the contract, the host city contract to Qatar in 2010, really demonstrated a complete disregard for um, and respect for human rights, knowing the conditions on the ground, knowing the ambivalence of Qatar to many um, internationally recognised human rights. FIFA went ahead and awarded that to them. So the obligation sort of on FIFA to respect human rights was simply ignored or not considered in 2010. So in the last sort of more than a decade, with the increased scrutiny around sporting bodies, we have seen FIFA take a backflip on that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what changes in 2026. Um, but FIFA now, I think, has a responsibility, particularly in relation to migrant workers, um, to support a fund that would um, provide some form of remedy to these migrant workers who have suffered um, in the business of building the infrastructure for these games, which FIFA will profit off. So there is a movement among some sponsors, um, you know, civil society, to set up a fund that would go to the migrant workers who have suffered um, and many whose families have, you know, lost a worker during this period. FIFA has so far not, um, you know, come on board with that, but there is increasing pressure that they need to. And perhaps also lobby the Qatar government to change um, some of the ways it reports and records deaths because I believe 70% of these worker deaths are reported as dying of natural causes when there may well be a medical cause um, that relates to the conditions that they were working under. Yeah, I agree. I think they have, FIFA's going to run these events and they have a responsibility to ensure they're run where, you know, at a minimum people are not dying, but people's rights are respected um, in order to, um, to hold these events. Now, we can't spend too much longer, but I do uh, want to touch on the the ways in which the other players in these sporting events, whether it be corporate sponsors, the media, how can those organisations leverage their power to bring about change in this area? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, any, any mega sporting event has um, some of the biggest companies in the world acting as sponsors. So with the FIFA World Cup... You've got companies like Budweiser, Adidas, Coke, McDonald's, Visa, Hyundai, Qatar, Airways, etc., 
all being very visibly involved um, in sponsorship and profiting from their brand being associated with the World Cup. So there's been a lot of pressure put both on FIFA and on these corporate sponsors to, as I say, you know, set up a financial compensation that would be funneled to migrant workers um, in it. So so far, so far, four companies, um, Budweiser, Adidas, Coke and McDonald's, have basically said they would support financial compensation and contribute to it. We've heard nothing from um, FIFA itself or Visa, companies like Hyundai, Qatar Airways. Um, they have not yet come on board. And I think um, people should look so, you know, look at these events and um, write to FIFA, you know, highlight them in social media, look at the companies who are sponsoring them. Again, use social media and sort of, you know, contact in the companies to say, um, you know, why aren't you contributing to this fund? You're profiting from this. People have died. People have been injured. There needs to be compensation. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I believe you're running a two-day seminar that people can zoom in on and join. Do you want to just give us very quickly the details of that so people can uh, join if they'd like? Yeah, we're running on um, starting tomorrow on the 20th of October. There'll be two sessions online. Um, If you Google the Australian Human Rights Institute and mega sporting events, you can register um, for those sessions. We've got people like Craig Foster speaking at it. Um, and there'll be um, people who've done research in Qatar talking about the fate of migrant workers. So we would love you to join us for those discussions tomorrow. Thank you very much. And that was Professor Justine Nolan, Director of the Australian Human Rights Institute at the University of New South Wales, speaking to us about issues of human rights in relation to the forthcoming FIFA World Cup in Qatar. And that was so interesting. I found it really, and especially, you know, knowing what um, corporations are going to provide financial compensation to migrant families and which ones aren't. And <laughs> opportunity to name and shame there, I think. Yeah, and which airline you choose to fly. Uh, indeed, indeed, um, yeah. It's such a popular sport. It's just something to be yeah. mindful and and I was oh. so excited when I first heard it was going to be in the Middle East, you know, generally, because it's, it's an area. It's the first time, I think. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think we, it's just about time to wrap up. So big thank you to all our guests. And uh, they've done a, a great job in bringing us a fantastic show for our listeners. We've yeah. had so many interesting conversations this morning. And lots, we, of, we lots of things to do, right? Yeah, yeah lots, lots of, of seminars to, to go to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So sign up. Uh, and they're free. <laughs> yeah. right. Yes, and oh, great that everything is all free. So like, good, good for us to go yeah, for them. Definitely. Oh. And get out to that demonstration on Friday at four o'clock as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. And uh, now we've got Stick Together. Yeah. See you You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.